Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Through most of my lifetime, the New York Times has been known as the paper of record in the United States. Uh, it's been, you know, looked to as the face of uh, American mainstream uh, newspaper reporting, and it's arguably uh, still an incredibly powerful news outlet. My guest, Ashley Rinberg, however, has given a very uh, critical look at the New York Times. The book is called The Gray Lady Winked, and it takes a look at the Times' misreporting, distortions, and fabrications, and the consequences of that misreporting for history. Ashley, good to have you with me. Thanks. Thank you, Al, for having me on. Let's let's begin with the the status of the New York Times. As I said, through most of my life, the New York Times was considered the paper of record here in the United States. Uh, it's come under criticism over the last two decades. Uh, does it still occupy that? Uh, is it still on the pedestal it once was? Yeah, it definitely is um, among a certain set of people, and I would, I would say those are the elites of American and to some extent global society. So decision makers and policy makers, and of course the media itself. But that has changed among the general public, which has looked at the paper with much more skepticism than it ever has. And you know, people are starting to look at the media in general. Uh, a little bit differently and, and questioning the premises and questioning the prejudices in ways that we haven't done before. Uh, were there any particular uh, notorious incidents that uh, kind of broke through popular consciousness to begin discrediting the New York Times? I think it's been more of a gradual devolution in a way. So, someone recently asked me, um, how it ends with the prestige or the legacy media. And my answer was that it's almost like the death of an empire, which is very slow, mm. um, kind of a crumbling effect. So I'm not sure that there's any one thing. I think it's more like an accumulation of many, many things, because as we know from paying attention, there are so many things. And when you look at the coverage um, over the past year, the past few years, you see these little incidents in, in many cases, they're actually quite large, um, but over the span of the New York Times' history, they're smaller, but they're sort of chipping away. They're putting, they're putting chinks in that armor that has protected the Times' reputation for so long. And the result is that today people just don't trust the New York Times and it being the flagship of the American news media, they don't trust the news media mm -hmm. in ways they once did. And in some ways, they don't trust it at all. Yeah, yeah. You make uh, a good point about uh, the idea of false narratives. We often hear people talk about fake news. Um, but mm -hmm. a false narrative is actually more than just, you know, uh, made up, uh, re incidents of reporting. Uh, a false narrative is, is a whole network of interlocking notions. Uh, why don't you go ahead and explain to us what you mean by false narrative? Yeah, that's right. I think we can say, you know, fake news um, could be a single report that's simply made up or not true. Um, and that's one thing. But when you're putting a false narrative into the world, that's something that's very intentional. There's something that takes a lot of sophistication and a lot of resources. And that's a very broad 
notion that's being created. And that could be something like, um, you know, Donald Trump was colluding with the Russian government to influence the election in 2016. That's a very broad, very long trajectory in terms of a narrative. It's not just a single story. Right, right. It's, it's a, an accumulation of dozens of stories, of dozens of, of hundreds of news reports and dozens of reporters. They're all pulling towards the same idea and they're building a narrative that once it's put out into the world really can't be retracted, even if it's shown to be not true. And that's what I say, uh, what I mean by a false narrative is something that's, that's implanted almost in our minds. It's built in our minds as much as it's built on newsprint or on digital. Um, and that's why it's so dangerous. So one narrative would be um, Palestinians are victimized by Israeli uh, aggressors. Uh, that's a big story. Goes on yes. for decades. Uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us how does that, how does a narrative like that get sustained? What how how are they going about reporting uh, in such a way that uh, the that individual reports about what's going on uh, between. Uh, Israeli soldiers and uh, the Palestinians, uh, how those those particular reports presuppose the larger narrative? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a very good example as well. And in that case, you know, that, that's something that's been built for many, many decades. But if even if we just look at the um, Second Intifada, which began in around 2000, and that was where this kind of really kicked into overdrive. And what you had was a series of claims, uh, claims like Israeli, uh, I think at the time was transportation minister Ariel Sharon visited the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And that's what set off the violence. And that was proven by the Mitchell Commission led by U.S. Senator George Mitchell to not be the case. But nevertheless, it was printed as hard fact and then taken as a premise. And then in all subsequent subsequent reporting, even on um, on events or incidents that didn't have to do with that particular event, that was just kind of levered into the reporting as an assumption. And that kind of thing ha- would happen again and again and again until you have this narrative that's built on these sort of layers of assumptions, none of which are necessarily true or, or based in fact, but they've all just been given this glaze of credibility that eventually becomes the the narrative itself. Yeah, yeah. And so when that, then when that narrative is operative, uh, it, it allows individual reporters to uh, get lazy. Uh, you mentioned the case of Mohammed Al-Dura, uh, the, the, who became a burning symbol uh, mm-hmm. uh, of injustice. Tell us about the story. Yes, yeah, so that was very much mixed into the narrative about about the Palestinians and the Israelis and the Intifada and the larger narrative about Palestinian victimhood and Israeli oppression. Um, And Mohammed Eldora was a young boy, he was about 11 years old at the time, this is in 2000, and was supposedly on his way with his father to go look at used cars in the middle of a violent uprising where there was checkpoints all around the the West Bank where this took place. And the story goes that, according to the New York Times, which printed this as fact, that Israeli soldiers opened fire on this 
unarmed boy and his father and basically shot the boy and killed him in cold blood. And this is what they reported. And again, back to that narrative, it wasn't just reported in a single news, uh, news report related to that event. It was reported again and again and again until it became an assumption, until it became a premise. And it was done within the first few days and weeks after the event uh, ostensibly occurred, before there was time for any actual investigation, including by the New York Times itself, who didn't have a reporter on the scene at the time. Mm. Um, and they just sort of ran with this notion that that's what happened uh, right up until a French court that had an independent French forensics examiner and, and a ballistics examiner um, investigator looked at the footage that was taken that day, looked at the evidence, and in his assessment, there was no possible way that given the positions, the relative position of the Israeli soldiers and Mohammed Aldora and his father, there was no way that the Israeli soldiers had actually shot the boy, let alone killed him. Hmm. And this was not something that the New York Times reported on subsequently. The narrative was too entrenched for them to go backwards. It would be too hard. It would challenge too many other assumptions for them to, so to speak, unscramble those eggs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is, the, the, I think this is what uh, people sense, but don't often know how to articulate it, these larger false narratives that are out there. And uh, they become so uh, elastic that you can, uh, they, they basically can gobble up almost any particular instance uh, uh, can be used, you know, to help support the overall narrative. Uh, is there still a b belief, the older idea that there is such a thing as uh, objective truth? Uh, and again, I think most people know we all bring, whenever we do our reporting, whenever we do our writing, we bring you know our own personal prejudices, our presuppositions there. We try to become conscious of them, and there's this kind of uh, striving to obtain some kind of uh, objectivity that can be publicly defended. Has that been lost entirely? I think it's being lost. I think we're seeing that being lost in journalism, uh, in the broader media, and in American society, um, where the notion of objective truth is being replaced by the idea of truth as a so-called construct, and a construct that's used for for power, for political gain, and especially in journalism, that's incredibly dangerous, where you give up on the idea that we're all kind of doing our best to approximate the truth, even if we're not never going to really get to the thing itself. Right. But we're, we're really doing our best. We know we have some biases. We're human beings. It's okay. Um, that's a very different story than the one that we're seeing today, which is that people are just saying there is no such thing as the truth. I have my truth and you have your truth. And guess what? I'm going to make my truth more important than yours. And that's what we're really seeing in the media with the, the 1619 project, with the, which the New York Times uh, launched last year. And that to me is the most dangerous and pernicious of all the trends we're seeing in journalism today. Uh, yeah. I mean, what this comes down to then, of course, is that uh, if, if, if there's no appeal to truth that, in principle, is something we can all share, if, if that's no longer something to appeal to, then what we're left with is power. Uh, these right. stories, uh, you know, 
<laughs> These two, basically, the truth gets whoever whoever controls the organs of public opinion uh, is the one who tells the truth. Right. Exactly. And that's what makes it very divisive as well. Yes. You would think that if, if we all allow for everybody's truth to be equal, we would be able to get along. That's not the case. Right. We, we find that we're competing for power. That's right. Ashley, hold it there. We'll come back and continue the conversation. My guest, Ashley Rinsberg, is author of The Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times Misreporting Distortions and Fabrications Radically Alter History. We'll be back in just a moment. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Ashley Rinsberg. He's the author of The Gray Lady Winked. Uh, Ashley earned degrees in philosophy uh, in science and technology studies at Cornell University. He ended up working at the prestigious digital NGO Internet Archive, where he ran the Internet Bookmobile Project. And then he ended up, uh, his work there took him to Egypt, where he installed the country's first uh, Internet Bookmobile at the Library of Alexandria. He's a novelist, an essayist, a journalist, lives in Tel Aviv with his family, and you can follow his work at ashleyrinsberg.com and follow him on Twitter at Ashley Rinsberg. We'll have those links for you, of course, at our website as, as well. Uh, Ashley, let's go back to what you mentioned earlier, and that is the 1619 Project. I, I remember it was the very late 1970s or very early 1980s, I can't remember exactly, when I... A friend of mine gave me an audio cassette of a debate, uh, and the th- debate thesis was, is the United States of America a force, on balance, is the United States a force for good or evil in the world? And I can remember at that time uh, thinking to myself, well, that's kind of weird. I mean, the well, United States has lots of problems, but I, the idea of my nation being a force for evil in the world is a little tough to take. Still, these were intelligent people, and that's late 70s, early 80s. In recent years, it looks to me like there's been a reassertion of this idea that America uh, may have been a force for evil rather than a force for good in the world. So tell me about the 1619 Project in light of that. Yeah, um, and I think that experience that you're mentioning speaks to this idea of the the false narrative, because it's not something that pops up overnight with even something as powerful as the 1619 Project, which was the New York Times devoting an entire issue of its its Sunday magazine to the idea that America was founded and rooted and born from slavery and not liberty. Um, It's called 1619 because that was the year that slaves were thought to first have arrived in the colonies. So America's birth is in 1619 rather than its date of independence of 1776. And for the times, this is something that um, is sort of integral to its worldview, which is that we live, Americans live in a slaveocracy that America is today, the institutions that are that structure American society are remnants of a slave society, and that the country can be divided into oppressors and to victims. And that very much lines up neatly with their ideology, and again, with 
taking the truth and weaponizing it, using it as a political tool to divide and to conquer. And that's what the 1619 Project has not only done, but is currently doing, because it's much more than a magazine issue. It's a curriculum. It's an educational curricula that is being used to educate, or in my view, indoctrinate students at all levels, from elementary school right up through college and beyond into adult education. And it is pernicious, it is insidious, and very, very dangerous. It's, I mean, I think most uh, most adults uh, are secure enough to acknowledge that in American history we've got some pretty bad moments. Um, you know, talk about the Trail of Tears. We talk about, uh, you know, the Jim Crow South. We talk about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. I mean, there are moments of embarrassment, moments of failure, moments of moral uh, 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 lapse in uh, in corruption even. Uh, But it's like I think most of us feel towards our country the way we feel towards our family. We got some bad people there now and then, but but it's my family still. Uh, Why? I mean, who wins? If, If one if one manages to get the narrative out there that the United States, on balance, is a force for evil rather than a force for good in the world. Who the heck is the winner there? That's a great question. I, you know, in one sense, the answer is very simple, and that's the New York Times. The New York Times has explicitly, they're not hiding this, they're explicitly using the 1619 Project to market themselves to a new generation of readers and subscribers who mm-hmm. are younger, m- much more on the hardcore of the left um, and do ha- do possess anti-American sentiment, which is something that has been running through the, the hard left for quite a long time since yep. the hard left emerged. So the New York Times wins from that. They win from dividing. They win from polarizing their audience. In a bigger sense, I think it is the people who are fighting for power. And, you know, from, from one hand, I can understand it, just as you said, Al, there is a history of... American transgression. There is a history of moral failings which are deep. And I don't think anybody's denying that, including the most vociferous critics of the 1619 Project. What they were criticizing the project for was changing history, doing, making these egregious errors of fact and of just falsehoods, putting falsehoods into the project that they knew were falsehoods. They knew that it was false to claim, for example, that the American Revolutionary War was fought to preserve slavery. The New York Times' own fact checker told them as much. This is an African-American woman, a professor of African-American history at Northwestern University who was contacted by the Times on this particular issue. And she told them, you cannot print that. It is false. And they printed it anyways, because the aim there was to literally change history. And if you want to change history, you actually have to go and change the facts. And that's why they did it. That's why they printed falsehoods and inaccuracies that they knew to be untrue is because the goal there was not to get to the truth. It was to create a whole new truth. Hmm. Uh have they backed away from this at all? I mean, I know it's been under criticism. Have they backed away from the 1619 Project? 
Not at all. Not in the least. They, if anything, the opposite. They have doubled down. They have extended the what, what we'd call in marketing brand extensions, partnerships with different kinds of media, pushing harder into education, into getting this into national curricula, um, and being very, very uh, on the offensive, really aggressive. When responding to criticism, it is not about a dialogue, especially with the with the 1619 Project's founder, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who does not engage in dialogue about this. She really goes on the attack. And that makes sense because you cannot defend something that contains just abject and egregious errors, um, historical falsehoods. You just have to fight. And that's exactly what they're doing. Let me let me move from there to. Uh... A, a, a transgression of the New York Times going back uh, to the uh, what's come to be called the Ukrainian famine that Robert mm-hmm. Conquest re, uh, wrote the book Harvest of Sorrow about. Uh, who, who, who was Walter Durante? Let me start there. Sure. Walter Durante was the New York Times' Russia correspondent in the early 1930s. And he was a very brilliant man. He was Oxford trained. He was English. He spoke many languages and he was arguably the most famous foreign correspondent in the world at the time. And that was in large part because of the platform he had as the New York Times' man in Russia. Mm-hmm. So he had, uh, he must have had very good access then, even during the days of Stalin. He did. Yeah, he had access. He was on the ground. He knew his way around the area that he was reporting in Russia. He spoke Russian um, and he was able to sort of freely report on what was going on there and to see in front of his own eyes that there was indeed a famine that had been that had been intentionally, deliberately uh, perpetrated by Stalin as a means of consolidating power in Stalin's early rule. And. Durante, how did he explain that? Or did he just deny that there were such facts on the ground? He simply denied it. He simply denied that there was any such thing as a famine. He acknowledged there were some shortages here and there, but he denied there was a famine. He denied the the reporting of other journalists who said that there was indeed a famine. Mm-hmm. And of course, Durante knew there was a famine. He saw with his own eyes people dying of starvation on the, the streets in villages of the Ukraine, and he knew very well what was going on. But he chose, well, he was instructed to, I should say, deny that this was happening. Who was Gareth Jones? Gareth Jones was a, another reporter on the ground in at the time in the Ukraine who reported the opposite, who reported that there was indeed a famine that was underway um, in the Ukraine and that it was probably being perpetrated by Stalin. And far from the fame and celebrity that Walter Durante enjoyed, Gareth Jones was actually murdered, um, likely by the KGB, for reporting the truth. Wow. Uh, what, Durante won a, did he win a Pulitzer for that reporting? Yes, he did. <laughs> hey, okay. So yes, really, uh, and, and we know better now. So how has the New York Times responded uh, to the fact that one of their star reporters, even though it's from a previous generation, that, you know, he won mm-hmm. a Pulitzer, 
there ought to be a moment uh, here of uh, embarrassment and I would hope some sort of repentance. Yeah, and you know that that's sort of the key issue here because you could say, well, you know, there were indiscretions, there were mistakes that happened in the past, and let's let's air them, let's correct them. Um, but that is not what has taken place at the New York Times. Around 2003, the Ukrainian American community started to rally around this issue to say, we want to have some redress here. We want this to be addressed properly because of all the things that we have just discussed. The New York Times actually commissioned a consultant who was a professor of history to examine the issue and to give them some advice about what to do about this Pulitzer Prize specifically. And that consultant, that professor recommended unequivocally that they return the prize. <laughs> and that I think makes sense to all of us. It's sort of, you know, it was ill-gotten and right. they should give it back and yeah. acknowledge. They refused to do that. They had some very flimsy excuses having to do with what they called airbrushing history, even though that's exactly what Walter Durante had done himself. <laughs> yes. And they still today have never returned that prize. Um, it's one of many, by the way, that the Times has won for faulty or, or uh, terrible reporting or outright malfeasance. Uh, most of them have not even been acknowledged publicly, but that is one that's particularly egregious because it's so high profile, because there were so many people who were killed by Stalin in that famine, up to 7 million. And there still today has never been any attempt to hold the, the Times to hold itself accountable. Ashley, I know we only talked about doing two segments. Any chance you could stay with me a little longer? Sure. Okay, very good. Happy to. Thank you. Ashley Rinsberg, my guest. The book, The Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times Misreporting Distortions and Fabrications Radically Altered History. We're not just talking about a, st a problem story here or there. We're talking about old narratives. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Ashley Rinsberg, author of The Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times Misreporting Distortions and Fabrications Radically Altered History. I guess, actually, one question that I wanted to ask you about was accountability. So you have an institution like the New York Times, uh, and it is clear, I agree with you, that it's not just a matter of uh, you've got a, a few reports uh, or reporters here and there who are ideologically driven. There does seem to be an underlying narrative, especially in, in particular, we mentioned a few areas already, but but. What I mean, what do the American people do about this? I mean, you can stop buying the New York Times, but you know that kind of boycott doesn't really have, in my mind, doesn't have too much of an effect. But who who gets to hold institutions like this accountable? I think we already are holding them accountable because they don't have the kind of power that they once did. They certainly don't have the readership and the revenue that right. they used to have. And that's across the board for the media. People are going elsewhere for right. their news. Right. They are also searching rather than just kind of leaning back and, you know, watching Walter Cronkite um, and taking it as gospel truth. They are going out and finding the facts for themselves. And I think that's even more valuable than a boycott because it's empowering people to find out the information, the facts, 
that they are looking to know. And, and that, to me, is a very positive sign. Do they pay attention to criticism from people like yourself? I don't think so. I think they have insulated themselves um, culturally and psychologically where they are not really interested in that. I think when we look at um, the kind of reporting they, they currently do in the 1619 project, the way they've doubled down, doubled down on it, the fact that they haven't really revisited so many of their own um, errors and transgressions, such as their reporting or their failure to report on the Holocaust, um, their mm-hmm. disastrous right. World War II reporting, which, you know, they had a Berlin bureau led by a Nazi sympathizer. That's right. Um, and, and on and on and on. And they don't go back and say, do these, you know, big exposés on their own failures. They just kind of move on. And that to me is, is the, the biggest failure of all. So are, are they driven by ideological concerns, you know, the kind of a woke ideology uh, as represented in the 1619 project, are they commercially driven? Are they simply survive? You know, institutional self-preservation. What, what? How would you characterize their motivation? All of the above, and I think what connects those three things that you've just mentioned is self-interest, as putting oneself, in this case, the the institution or the dynasty that that controls the New York Times before the public that it supposedly serves and before the truth. And, you know, that's where things get really toxic is when it's not either ideology or financial interest, but both. And the 1619 Project is a really great example of that, unfortunately, because as I earlier said, they have made this a centerpiece of their marketing outlook for the next few years because they know their audience is younger and woker and more leftist. And that suits the ideology that they that is found within the New York Times' newsroom itself. Um, and you have that kind of uh, collision of forces, and, and it, the result is just this explosion of uh, falsehood and distortion. Yeah, I've, I've paid attention to all the talk about looking for diversity in the newsroom, and that usually means we'll have it... it as a reference to gender or ethnicity or race. Right. But I'm just wondering, does anybody ever consider that diversity might be better off uh, being thought of in terms of the uh, backgrounds or even the faith commitments or ideological commitments of the reporters? So you'd have an evangelical uh, Protestant in the newsroom there. You'd have a, a Catholic. You'd have a Muslim. You'd have a Buddhist. You'd have an atheist. You have a, you know what I'm saying? I mean, why can't that be considered a way of trying to get at things and let let them fight this out? I think the reason is that the, the so-called drive for diversity, which is really a skin-deep diversity, right. is, is really a veneer. It's a veneer. It gives them enough cover to carry on what's ideologically homogenous newsroom and ideologically homogenous culture in general. I mean, the the culture of elite America, whether it's political or um, in media or journalism, is very monolithic. It's a monoculture. And that suits those institutions very well because it helps them perpetuate themselves, their interests, their ideology. And they can do that under the cover of so-called diversity. And it, it all kind of works very nicely for everybody. But again, it doesn't reflect the, the actual makeup 
of the American public, which is really diverse. It is right. ideologically, spiritually, politically, um, and even economically diverse. Mm-hmm. But that is not something we see at the New York Times or any other major media outlet. Ashley Lima, thank you for being with me for the work on the book. How do people stay in touch with your work and, and see what else you're doing? Um, Twitter is a great way. Uh, my my handle is my name, Ashley Rinsberg. Uh, Facebook is the same. I have a Facebook page, great place to find me. Or you can also visit the the book's webpage, which is thegrayladywinked.com. It's, it's gray with an A, not an E. Um, and, you know, there's an email address there that you can reach out to our team and let us know what you think. We're definitely always looking for the feedback. Um, but uh, but thank you in the meantime, Al. I really appreciate you having me on. It's yeah. been a great conversation. I hope we can talk again. That was great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ashley Rinsberg, the book again is called The Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times Misreporting Distortions and Fabrications Radically Alter History. I did want to take a moment uh, today to look over, acknowledge the passing of uh, Colin Powell, uh, Jim Garrity over at the National Review had some insightful remembrances of Colin Powell that who, who died yesterday morning, and he had me uh, actually reminded me of some uh, early impressions of Powell. I mean, I remember when pro-life people were excited about his possible run for the White House. Uh, it was it was widely thought. Uh, part of the grapevine conversation, that his wife uh, had some connection with a crisis pregnancy center in the D.C. area. And, of course, uh, Powell had a reputation for decency, courage, uh, and it was still hoped at that time that an African-American president would go a long way toward racial reconciliation, uh, especially a Republican African-American president. Um, Powell became known to the public, really during the Persian Gulf War. And he was known for his direct, uh, sometimes dramatic uh, statements. Uh, but what people liked about him, he, he cut through the usual, you know, uh, Washington jargon. Uh, one, sent, one statement that has been repeated often in remembrance of him, it says, Talking about the uh, the first Persian Gulf War, our strategy is to go after this army. It's very, very simple. First, we're going to cut it off, and then we're going to kill it, end of quote. Now, I think people wanted a presidential candidate that could be so direct and so clear. And Garrity points out, in fact, that expectations were so high enough that the sci-fi television show Sequest DSV <laughs> back then, set uh, it was set in the far future of the year 2018. <laughs> but uh, the television show actually worked in a reference to former President Colin Powell <laughs> back there, in, back in the 90s. But in 95, he decided not to run uh, for president, and Bill Clinton was horrified of having to run against him, so he, he was happy. Uh, Powell told the public, and I, I think... I've always believed him. He told the public he lacked the passion and commitment for political life. His wife threatened uh, to leave him if he ran for president. And she said she thought Powell would be targeted for assassination by a racist. Uh, You know, Garrity points out, I wonder 
how recent American history might have turned out differently if Alma Powell had less fear of her husband being assassinated. Well, he did become Secretary of State in 2001, and uh, he was perceived back in the Bush administration, first uh, George W. Bush, excuse me, the George W. Bush administration, as a voice of moderation. Uh, he was kind of the moderate voice in contrast to Vice President Cheney and Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld. should point out, by the way, that there always seems to be a tension between Secretaries of State, Secretaries of Defense. I mean, same thing happened during the Reagan years when Caspar Weinberger was Secretary of Defense and George Shultz was Secretary of State. And I guess it makes sense. Uh, the Secretary of Defense tends to see military solutions to problems, where the Secretary of State tends to see diplomatic solutions to problems. But that was true uh, in the Reagan years, and it was true in, uh, at least in the Bush two years. Uh, but Powell had been very reluctant uh, to use military force uh, before George W. Bush uh, came to the presidency. And he made it clear that the United States should be should really restrict its military interventions to situations in which its vital interests are threatened. He was not a big champion of military force in the um, in the promotion of uh, democracy, for instance. He thought uh, our our for our vital interests had to be threatened, and then and this is what made him distinct. He insisted. You should always use overwhelming force. That's the point of the United States having the military power that it has. Uh, don't act until your vital interests are threatened, and then when you do, it ought to be overwhelming force. Uh, he, he, you know, it's funny. He had, uh, by the way, he never, uh, he never, after George W. Bush, he never endorsed a Republican for president again. And uh, apparently he was mortified by the, his role in making the case for the invasion of Iraq back in 2003. Uh, he was the one who made the case before the United Nations about Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction. In, in, in an interview with NPR in 2006, he said, quote, when people ask me, is this a blot on your record? Yeah, okay, fine. It's a blot on my record. It's there for everybody to see forever. But do you want me to walk around saying I have a blot on my record every day? End quote. I, you know, he regretted it. And uh, he knew it was there. He didn't want to stay focused on it, though. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, after George W. Bush, he never endorsed a Republican for president candidate again, although he gave some donations to John McCain in 2008. I will mention one thing, though. Because we have this impression of him, as a very polite, kind of buttoned-down public persona. He could be blunt. Uh, in fact, there are a number of leaked private emails uh, that revealed his true feelings. He endorsed Hillary Clinton, by the way, in 2016. And he, this is what he said, I would rather not have to vote for her, although she is a friend I respect. She's a 70-year-old person with a long track record, unbridled ambition, greedy, not transformation, with a husband still expletive deleted, bimbos at home. Uh, Powell has passed on. It's important that whenever we see a figure of 
public consequence, that we take a moment and pray for his soul. But also, don't forget today to turn to St. Isaac Jokes and ask him to pray for us as well.